0: This is the fifth offering in this summer sermon series in the Beatitudes, and today we look at blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Each week in this sermon series is sort of building on what's come before, trying to just uh, reestablish and remind you of the things that we've talked about previously. If you'd like, you can go back and listen to those previous sermons at tbcphoenix.org. You can also subscribe in iTunes if you look for Trinity Bible Church in, in there as well. But well, in the sermon series, we're, kind of stri- we're swimming upstream a little bit because we're trying to restore or retrieve an earlier definition of the word happiness. We've called the sermon series Happy Life, a series for the cynical, the tired, and dissatisfied. The Greek word that begins each of these sentences, those beatitudes, makarios, is really hard to bring into English. I'm indebted to, to Jonathan Pennington's book, The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, here. Our ESV and most modern translations in English say, blessed are, or blessed are. And that's not wrong. That's not wrong. But when we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, we tend to read that as like an if-then statement. If I'm poor in spirit, then God will bless me. But the word behind Blessed, blessed, in our English translations, is not a verb. It's not describing an action that God's taking so much as it's describing a state of blessedness. So it's not an expression of divine blessing. It's a description of the state of human flourishing. This is a pretty familiar passage of Scripture. It comes up all the time. So it might be helped uh, to, to sort of tilt our head to the side a little bit and look at this passage of Scripture just a little bit differently, to slow down, to really meditate on what Jesus is communicating. Makarios can also be brought into English as happy. So we could rightly say happy or the merciful. And that helps us understand that the blessedness that Jesus is declaring is not describing an active blessing that God is giving, but describing a state of flourishing. But there's difficulty, as we all know, in using the word happy. We've talked about this every week, but I don't need not need to return to it. We've tried to lay out two different concepts of, of happiness, and we've called it a thin and a thick happiness. A thin happiness is mere emotion, and a thick happiness is a state of flourishing. So whereas happiness used to be related to being good, starting in the 18th century, it turned into merely feeling good. That's sort of the dividing line that we're trying to swim upstream against. So when we talk about happiness in this series, we're not just talking about an emotional state. We're talking about a deep state of satisfaction and flourishing. Stick with me now. Thick happiness is about reaching our highest fulfillment as a human. We've been created by God in order to seek satisfaction. That's a desire that he's given to us to pursue bliss, to pursue the absence of suffering, the absence of evil. And so ancient philosophers have set their minds minds to try to figure out what what is the source of satisfaction that we're all trying to find? What is the source of that satisfaction, and how can we actually attain it? How can we find that happiness? It's as basic as a human question as there is. How can we get true happiness? Western philosophers have had their own approach. So Aristotle would have said that it's the product of a life well-lived, it's the good life. Seneca said that it was the pursuit of virtue. Epicurus said that it was the enjoyment of delight. Eastern philosophers, of course, had their own take on it. Buddha would have said that we find happiness by releasing the desire for happiness, that suffering and desire are actually just an illusion. And if we can recognize that, we can attain a state of bliss, which they call nirvana. Each of these approaches might be right in some ways, but in the final analysis, they're all wrong. Each of those is a man-centered pursuit of happiness. For Jesus, true happiness lies in covenantal relationship with the God of Israel. It can only be properly defined in relationship with the God who is, the God who created us with that desire for himself. And this is really the consistent message of the Old Testament. Uh, the wisdom literature is filled with this concept. It's the it's really it's the point of the Book of Ecclesiastes. So for the Christian, happiness has to be understood in relationship to the Triune God. So if you pursue God in Christ, the only true and eternal, unflinching source and fountain of happiness, then happiness comes as a result. Jesus' vision of human flourishing and happiness is not something that humanity dreamt up. It's a divine revelation from God. This is what sets it apart. And it's precisely because it's not a vain human philosophy that it strikes us as so surprising, paradoxical, counterintuitive. How can Jesus say, happier are those who mourn? Well, it's because Christian happiness is more than mere emotion. And it recognizes that this present life is not all that there is. Christian happiness is not opposed to rejoicing and being glad. We just saw Jesus tell us to rejoice and be glad. But on this side of heaven, the healthy emotional life of the Christian involves more than that. Jesus showed us that true happiness true happiness, and a variety of emotions are not always at odds in this life. There's no shame in Jesus' experience of bitter sadness at the death of Lazarus. Distress, his deep distress and anxiety in the garden of Gethsemane. Or in his righteous anger at the money changers who turned the temple into a den of robbers. Or in his gut-wrenching compassion on the crowds who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus says, happy are the merciful, he's, something, he's saying something that is actually deeply shocking and profound. It might seem simple on its face, but mercy mercy assumes that we are exposed to the suffering of others. Other philosophers thought that compassion or emotionally engaging with the suffering of others would ruin your happiness, but Jesus says that we are to enter into the stress and misery of others in the pursuit of happiness. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world in Christ. It's with all that in mind that I propose our big idea of our sermon on Matthew 5 7 is that the happy life depends upon mercy. The happy life depends upon mercy. We're going to ask three questions What is mercy? How does the Christian show mercy? How is the Christian shown mercy? What is mercy? How does the Christian show mercy? And How is the Christian shown mercy? Let's ask for our hearts to be illumined by the Holy Spirit so that we can embrace this teaching. Father, help us this morning. Help us to embrace these counterintuitive values of your kingdom. Father, help us desire the kingdom of, of the Lord more than the kingdom of man. We need you to do a work in us by your Spirit to help us free us from ourselves and our own selfish desires, and to desire you most of all. Father, we love you. We we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is mercy? What is mercy? As Christians, our call is to understand all of reality in relation to God. So we can't rightly understand the fullness of what mercy is when we are left to ourselves. God defines what mercy is. He is the Father of mercies, and we know God because he has disclosed himself in the word. So what does the word say about the mercy of God? 2 Kings 13.23 says that the Lord was gracious to Israel, and he had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 2 Chronicles 36.15 says that the Lord sent prophets to warn Israel of the repercussions of their disobedience to the covenant because he had compassion on them. Psalm 78, 38 says, In his compassion, the Lord atoned for the iniquity of Israel and did not destroy them. Psalm 86 and Psalm 145 both say that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 111.4 says that the Lord has shown himself gracious and merciful through his wonderful works. The prophets describe God in this same way as well. Jeremiah 12.15 says that after the judgment that would come for their disobedience upon Israel, he would again have compassion on them. Lamentations 3.22 says that his compassion never fails and never ends. Micah 7.19 we just heard Eric read for us moments ago. Says that God will again have compassion on Israel, and tread their iniquities underfoot, and will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. God's mercy is His goodness in action towards those in misery. This is a pretty standard definition found in most good systematic theologies. God's mercy is His goodness in action towards those in mercy, or in misery, I should say. Bless you. The Lord put his goodness into action on behalf of Israel often, as we've just read about. They found themselves in a place of misery quite often, didn't they? And how did they get into their misery? Two sort of different approaches here. Were they victims of a fallen world, or was it a result of their own disobedience? I, have to say, I think we'd have to say that it's both. It's both, the fact that they live in a fallen world and they were punished for their disobedience. Remember, their story as a nation, Israel, it began in the nation of Egypt, where they were oppressed in slavery. They were under a cruel Pharaoh who made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And God heard their cry, and because of his goodness, he had mercy on them. He had mercy on them and sent them Moses, who led them out of that place of misery. Once God ransomed them from slavery bringing them out of that that area of oppression, out of his goodness again, he gave them his laws. He gave them his laws of justice and of mercy. Those laws would have helped them eliminate their misery if they had followed them perfectly. Had Israel followed the law, they would have been uh, saved from their misery. So out of his goodness, God provided a means for atoning for the sin, that sin that was disobedience from the law. He told them to build a tabernacle. Israel was instructed to build a tabernacle where they could make sacrifices to atone for their sin. So the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a a propitiation. He would make a sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is the place of atonement. And that cycle of Israel's rebellion and God's mercy would continue throughout the Old Testament. And, of course, that concept reappears in the New Testament when, when Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she bears a son whose name would be called Jesus. Luke 1, she sings a song about this coming child, about how his birth would be an extension of the Lord's goodness. Jesus' birth is the Lord remembering his mercy, according to Mary. She sings a song about it and how true it is, for what we know of the mercy ministry of Jesus He looked on the rubble of a fallen world with compassion, and he took action. Two blind men followed him and cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. A Canaanite woman whose daughter was oppressed by a demon came to him and cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. The father of an epileptic said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Ten lepers lifted up their voices to Jesus and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so Jesus put his goodness into action on their behalf. Each of those miraculous healings was a sneak preview of a world that is to come, where the effects of the fall, the rubble of a fallen world, would one day be reversed. But even more importantly, Jesus recognized that the source of our misery was actually the problem of sin. So not only did he have mercy on the physically broken, Jesus had mercy on the spiritually broken. So when a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, he tells him, "Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven." Of course the scribes are are, are looking on and watching and they're they're thinking, "Man, that that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin." Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? In other words, what's easier, to relieve physical misery or to relieve spiritual misery? But so that they would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic to rise, to pick up his bed, and to go home. And he did. He rose and he went home. Jesus' mercy extends beyond the rubble of a fallen world to the very source of our misery, which is sin. This is why in Romans 3, it says that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation on the cross, where the atonement for sin would take place. He is the true and better mercy seat that we heard about in the Old Testament. He is the merciful high priest who shows the riches of his mercy and the salvation of believers by restoring them back into right relationship with their creator. Jesus was filled with pity, joined with power. He didn't just observe the brokenness of the world. He had the authority. He had the desire. He had the power to do something about it. Given what God has done for us in defining mercy in the person of Christ, how do his followers show mercy? How does the Christian show mercy? We said that God's mercy is His goodness in action towards those in misery. I think it follows then that the Christian's mercy is actually Christ's goodness in action towards those in misery. And we exhibit Christ's mercy both in word and in deed. First, in word. We, we know that we don't have the power to forgive sin. That is not something that we have the capacity for, to do. That's a, that's a prerogative of God. Jesus is the high priest. He's the only high priest. So on Sundays, when we confess our sins together and the service leader announces an assurance of pardon, he's not acquiring your forgiveness as a priest on, on your behalf. That's not how it's working. What he's doing is announcing the pardon that you have already gotten in Christ, that, that pardon is yours in Christ. The Christian ministry of the Word is the proclamation or the command to repent and believe in Jesus. This is what we do in evangelism. That's what we do in discipleship. God works through his Word. That's why we value preaching. We value teaching. We value the the ability to to read and to explain and to apply Scripture to our lives here at Trinity. It's why we gather to do that. We gather around the Word in every instance as we meet together together. Our ministry of the word is different from Jesus's. We're just pointing to him. We don't say your sins are forgiven. We tell people that their sins are forgiven. The ministry of the word is meant to be the priority of the Christian church. So when churches closed down during the pandemic, some took it as an opportunity to minimize the the necessity to gather as a church. They would say, hey, maybe we just need to stop listening to sermons on Sunday morning and just get out there in the world and take action. And I hear that. But that only makes sense if this world is all there is. That's ultimately a secular message, isn't it? Jesus' priority was the forgiveness of sin, and it must be our priority as well. We don't provide forgiveness of sins, we point to the one who does. It's a relatively minor consequence if we show people the mercy of Christ in this life without speaking about their need for his mercy in the next Jesus' Beatitudes are all looking forward to the restoration of all things. This is the the theme of his Sermon on the Mount. There will be a final judgment before a holy God, and it's then that we are really going to need mercy. The mercy we receive here is just a shadow of the mercy that we truly need. People need Jesus' holiness more than they need our compassion That's why our mission as the institution of Trinity Bible Church is to make disciple making disciples and to plant disciple making churches. Now, please don't let anyone convince you that preaching and teaching is outdated and that we simply need to just skip church and go do acts of kindness in the community. God's word is living and active, it never changes, but it also never quits. God does his work through his word. We really have to let this beatitude settle into our hearts to understand why. The most radical need that any of us have is to be rid of our miserable sin. So it follows that the most merciful thing that we can do is to speak about Jesus and the need of the forgiveness of that sin. But we also do, uh, the, the, we, we sort of show the mercy of Christ, not just in word, but also in deed. Having established the priority of the ministry of the word, we need to consider the ministry of deeds, the ministry of good works. When we listen to the teaching of Jesus, and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, and we want to pursue righteousness, deeds of mercy ought to follow as a result of that. So we gather as Christians around the word, and then we're scattered as Christians to live out our lives in the world. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness ought to love their neighbors. That's the righteous thing to do. And one of the ways that we do that is by showing them mercy. Mercy is not opposed to justice. Remember the beatitude that came just before it. One commentator wrote that the very first grace that grows like a beautiful spring flower on the ground of righteousness is the grace of mercy. So if we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we will show mercy. On Thursday, I was sh- studying in my office for this sermon. And I'll, ad- I'll admit, I was lost in the weeds a little bit. I was, I was trying to figure out how do we show mercy How does compassion and mercy relate? Like, is emotion necessarily involved? How is Augustine's view of compassion different than Seneca's? And as I'm working, very much lost in the weeds, I was confronted with the misery of someone who came to the church literally looking for mercy. This woman, made in the image of God, came to the church because she was in obvious and apparent need. It's not the first time she's been there, it usually requires a lot when she comes. And can I just confess that my first thought was, I don't have time for this. How easy it is for me to turn Jesus' practical teaching into like a philosophical idea and then just sort of leave it there. I'm quite sure that's not what Jesus has in mind for us. Stephen and Julie and I did what we could, got us some clothes and food, but that experience was like a cold splash of water on me. When we see someone in misery, we're moved to feelings of pity. moved to feelings of compassion. That's how it ought to be. That's how God has made us to be. Augustine, I think rightly said, what is compassion but a kind of fellow feeling in our heart for the misery of another which compels us to help him if we can? If everything is functioning correctly in us and we're not sociopaths, Seeing the misery of other people stirs something in you. Empathy is feeling someone else's pain. It's sort of putting yourself in their shoes. And when we feel others' pain, we're compelled to help if we can. But we don't always take action, do we? Why don't we act mercifully? There are some obvious reasons, like selfishly protecting our time, resources, our emotional life even. I'm sure you can think of some more reasons, but here are just a couple I want to draw attention to briefly. The First is we often feel like we don't know how to help. Sometimes we feel like we can't take any meaningful action that would alleviate their misery. God made us in order to be compelled to help, and if we're exposed to suffering that we can't help with, it's frustrating to us. It's not the way things are meant to work, and this is only getting harder, right? With the instant spread of news, we're aware of misery all over the world in a moment's notice. We don't just read reports about the collapse of a tower that happened a week ago in the newspaper. We see live footage of people mourning the loss of loved ones and bodies being carried from the rubble. And that's only one of the myriad stories of misery that we're exposed to on a daily basis in the news. Because misery is like at least 90% of what the news does, right? If it bleeds, it leads. One author is writing about the way that the news works made a joke about this. He said, you are never gonna have the TV turned on and see a breaking news alert from a reporter on the street that says, hey, all's well here, everybody's happy and healthy, back to you in the studio. It's not the way it works. We are exposed to the suffering of so much of the world and it's frustrating because we can't help we're too far away to do anything tangible about it. And let's face it, the very idea of, of praying for others who are in misery has come under attack in the public sphere. If you, thoughts and prayers is like a sarcastic jab that people throw at Christians. But be reminded, going to God in prayer is not a passive thing. Approaching the throne of God and crying out, Jesus, have mercy on them, is no small thing Sometimes turning toward God in prayer on the behalf of others' misery, advocating for them, interceding for them before the throne is the most Jesus-like thing that you can do. Don't despise prayer as if it were not actually taking action. And if someone is in your life that is suffering that you do know personally, you know them to be in distress, one of the most effective things you can do is simply acknowledge their pain. Say, I know... I see it, and I'm so sorry. But all that exposure to misery can be overwhelming. It can lead to what has been called compassion fatigue. I think this is maybe just the second one that I want to bring to mind, compassion fatigue. We're simply exposed to too much misery. It's more misery than any of us can actually bear. There's been a lot of talk recently about people being empaths. Those who are like emotional sponges, they experience the pain of others in a very real way. The idea is that because we are finite creatures, we have limitations. We have limited resources. We can only stay awake for so long before we have to go to sleep. We can only pay attention for so long before we need to take a break. Sort of in the same way, we can only show compassion for so long before that resource gets depleted. And once that resource is depleted, we get exhausted. It's simply not even possible for us to be compassionate and sympathetic about every instance of tragedy that we know about. It's just not possible. We are creatures with limitations. So when we repeatedly are exposed to human need or suffering without having any way to actually extend mercy, we can get worn thin. It's a particular danger in professions that are exposed to the suffering of others all the time, like first responders, counselors, nurses, medical professionals. And this, this context, this, this idea of, of compassion fatigue, when it hits us, can lead to anxiety, loss of sleep. just like a general numbness, not actually being able to engage with other people anymore a loss of optimism, relationally withdrawing from other people, disconnecting from other people. With so much misery, we can become overwhelmed. In the last couple of years, have we not been exposed to so much suffering and and misery of the world that it's well beyond our reach to actually do anything of, of, of tangible help? When we're exposed to so much misery, we can actually get overwhelmed to the point where we we just don't take any action at all. We're exposed to the need and we feel compassion because we're made in God's image and that's how He made us to be, but then we're we're stopped there. But according to the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's not enough. You can't just see it and feel it, you have to take action. Taking action to alleviate misery for other people helps us alleviate our own emotional anxiety and distress. It takes our mental focus off of ourselves. And it sort of hits pause on what can be our our morbid introspection that loses track of what God is doing in the world. So how can we be merciful? How can we act in mercy? In order to, to fully extend Christian mercy, we have to see the need, feel the need, and fill the need. As we said, we can't feel or act on everything we see. It is not possible. Own that. We have to accept our human limitations. But we, we would be helped if we could find one area where you can take action in order to make a difference, to find a cause that means a lot to you, or a family member, or a neighbor, or a church member, one cause that you can actually get engaged with and commit to support it, whether that's supporting disaster relief efforts with your money or your labor, volunteering at a shelter, visiting Christians in prison, visiting those who are homebound, checking in on them. We can't do it all. But I bet we can all do one thing. You should know that we have Mercy Ministries here at Trinity. We host a food pantry on the first Saturday of the month. It's on summer break right now, but it starts again the first Saturday of October. You can show up at 6 a.m. on Saturday, and you'll be done around 11 a.m., give or take, And you have an opportunity then to be the conduit of God's goodness in helping them by relieving their misery. We have hope for addiction that meets on Monday nights. If you've been affected by addiction and you'd like to either go and help or be helped, you can talk to Jim Hughes about that. He just led us in prayer moments ago. We also have supported uh, missionaries at this church who work with the foster care system like Arms of Love, Uh, or impacting hearts, I don't want to overwhelm you with options, but just know that there are opportunities that exist for you to tangibly extend mercy to others, and in so doing, alleviate your compassion fatigue. We can show mercy in other small ways, as to, of course, like volunteering a favor, helping out a stranger when his car is broke down, when your kids talk, listen. It doesn't take a lot to make somebody's day, A kind word, a tender touch can go a long way. Ultimately, the mercy that we show to others in word and in deed ought to be an expression of the goodness of God that is shown to us. So let's just end by meditating together on how the Christian has been shown mercy or is shown mercy. How is the Christian shown mercy? Well, we said at the front that the big idea of this sermon is that the happy life depends upon mercy. We talked about how our happiness is, to some degree, related to our ability to express mercy to other people. On a basic human level, we find mercy in the act of showing mercy. But how do we depend upon the mercy of God? Well, we don't want to ever start with the concept of mercy based on a human understanding, and then sort of kind of clean it up a little bit, and then Apply it to God. That's, that's backwards of how we should, how theology is done as, as a Christian. So this is your regular reminder that God is not simply a bigger, better human. His mercy is not exactly like ours. His mercy is incomparable, according to Jeremiah 3:1. It is certain His mercy is ceaseless. God is never miserable. He is eternally blessed and happy and satisfied in himself. And you might hear that, and you might be thinking, well, I don't know if that's encouraging. But here's why this matters. God does not suffer compassion fatigue. He can be an eternal fountain of mercy towards us because of the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He sees our need, and he has acted The greatest expression of God's mercy to us, of course, is in the incarnation of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. The God who we would want to say doesn't suffer took on a suffering nature. So that Jesus, in his humanity, knows our suffering experientially. He knows the sorrow and sting of death because he lived through it. He knows what it's like to be tempted, he knows our limitations, he knows our weaknesses. He is our sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us, advocates for us. Christ, who calls us in our our own misery, doesn't just call to us, he enters into it. He comes down into the pit of our misery and he pulls us out single-handedly. In Christ, by faith, we are rid of the misery of our shame and of our guilt before a holy God. So friend, if you are here this morning and you have not cried out for mercy, from Christ, to free you from the misery of sin. This is your chance. We face an eternal oppression of sin, death, and the devil. This is your moment. Cry out for mercy. Fill out a connection card. Bring it to the welcome desk. Speak to someone at the back doors on your way out. Let's just sum it up like this. Our temporary happiness in this life depends on our, mis- our mercy towards others ins- let me try it again. Our temporary happiness in this life depends on our mercy toward others in misery. Our eternal happiness with God depends on His mercy toward us in our miserable sin. We still live in the broken-down rubble of a fallen world which means that in this life, we will always be somewhat discontent and dissatisfied. We're always anticipating more mercy to be shown. But be assured, God will deliver. A new creation is coming, so let's act like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking mercy on us Thank you for being the endless fountain of mercy that we can turn to. Thank you for showing us what mercy looks like and the forgiveness of sins and the uh, the alleviation of, of the misery of the effects of sin. Father, would you make Trinity Bible Church a body of believers who love you, embrace your gospel, share the gospel, and act like the gospel is true. Father, help us to be merciful as you are merciful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.